Welcome to this episode of the IPA's Research Series podcast, part of the IPA's Research Group based at CEU in Vienna. My name is David Tilt. I'm an SJD candidate at the Department of Legal Studies. On today's episode, we have with us our guest, Stina Talman-Locke. Stina is Associate Professor at Copenhagen Business School, Department of Management, Politics and Philosophy. In her research, she addresses intersections of copyright law, design and digital transformation. She's currently also research group leader of management and entrepreneurship in her department and coordinator of the MA programme Strategic Design and Entrepreneurship, co-organised by the Royal Danish Academy of Design and Architecture and Copenhagen Business School. In this episode, we're going to be talking about Stina's research on copyright and the Artec Law Project, a project of a research consortium based in Copenhagen, Sydney, Exeter, Yale and Ottawa, which explores the interaction and mutual shaping of art, technology and copyright law. So firstly, thank you to Stina for joining us here in person in Vienna. How are you enjoying Vienna so far? I'm enjoying it very much and thank you very much for the invitation. I'm really happy to be here and it's feels quite special after having not traveled for so long to suddenly be in, well, to be here. <laughs> we're so grateful that you're joining today and it's a real pleasure that it is in person and that we're getting back to in-person events where we can see people and have these academic interactions in person after such a long online period. So I think our first question, what is the story of the Artec Law Project? Where did your idea come from? and? Why do you think it was successful in attracting funding? Well, thank you for that question. And actually, I mean, it really, I can sort of sort of point to a particular point in time, actually, um, back in 2018 at a conference in Rome. Um, so this was the annual meeting of the ISTIP Society. It's the International Society um, on the theory and history of intellectual property law. And so every member of, of the Arctic Law Consortium, they have been members of, of ISTIP for a while. And we were there in Rome for the annual meeting. And we, some of us knew each other um, and some of us didn't know each other so well, but we got talking and um, some of us, um, I mean, some, some are art historians and some are lawyers. And then there's me working on sort of all, all sorts of things and history of copyright and but also on on business um, sort of related sort of issues in in relation to to uh, copyright and so on and um, and we got talking and we sort of um, there, there was sort of a movement in 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 our sort of conversations and we decided that we we would try to go for um, applying for some grants so we actually we we went and applied for an Australian grant and we went and applied for a Danish um, Research Council grant and we got both. Um, and uh, and this was very exciting and I think we were quite overwhelmed by sort of the success of this whole thing. But in, in a way it was sort of coming together of shared interests, but also going beyond what any one of us could have sort of achieved just on our own. And uh, and then I want to say one one thing about it. There was a sort of moment of serendipity to this, and this is what I mean. This was what was following us when when we had to go into online and all that. Sort of this would never have happened if we hadn't been together in that physical space. So and it, well, you asked me why did why do we think we were sort of successful in this? I think it was because we sort of managed to to demonstrate that there was a sort of fruitfulness of this interdisciplinarity, and. We could sort of we could point to this push from, from technology. There's a strong push that sort of changes behaviors, changes directions in art and in visual art in particular. And then sort of understanding all of this 
which would then lead to sort of legal and policy responses, could really only sort of be achieved by bringing it all together. And um, so in, in a way, it was to, to understand where all this was going with sort of art and, and law and, and technology. It, it was simply something that couldn't be resolved within the confines of a single discipline. And I think we managed to sort of uh, make a case for this in the, both applications. And so you mentioned kind of that period of the shift to online and kind of coming from that very physical space and then this kind of new environment for all of us and continuing scholarship in that kind of context. So the consortium starts and then the pandemic hits. How did that shift kind of the, not the quality, but the kind of dynamic of the workshops that were these really focusing on creativity and curiosity in these interdisciplinary areas? It's obviously difficult enough to design for in-person events. And then you had to move that online because of COVID. So how did you come up with those ideas, those kind of early thoughts about online planning and then eventually to staging these events in Minecraft? (laughs) Yes. Well, um, to begin with, it was so disappointing. I mean, we had worked so hard on creating a format for the physical workshop and we had been talking to sort of designers and we had been sort of trying to implement all sorts of methods because we wanted to to have this um, focus on co-creation and innovative approaches and and sort of really getting something out of being there together because sometimes you can feel even though there's dialogue obviously at, at conferences there's also a lot of monologue right I mean it's a lot of me telling what I've sort of achieved or whatever but we wanted really to 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 make the most of bringing together people from really different sort of walks of, uh, of academia. And um, so we'd set up this whole format and then we would, it was just not possible to do it. So, so this was really, really, really disappointing. But we, after sort of swallowing up the di- disappointment, we were thinking, okay, how can, how can we sort of actually sort of do this online? How can we sort of, again, try to set agendas and set, or sort of begin new conversations in this, um, in this. Well, given that we have to be online, and we knew for sure that. Well, we all agreed that. Well, probably Zoom is not going to do it for us. I mean, or any vi- video, so normal video conference was going to do this for us. It can do many things, and it, and it's good for many things, but it's not good for serendipity, and it's not good for. Um, I mean, setting up new agendas and, uh, and and pushing the, the sort of conversations and so on. And then I got sort of, I through friends, I sort of talked, found, found out sort of some, found some facilitators who were sort of, they were facilitating online conferences and I got talking to them and then together we got into this idea, why don't we do it in Minecraft? I mean, this is um, actually... Um, this is something that we we've, we see our children do, and and it's a total it, and cr- it creates that atmosphere of co-creation and collaboration, and and sort of doing things together. Um, why don't we grown ups? Why don't we try to do what the, the youngsters do? So um, so they could do it, and we really we could only do it because we had their help. We, it needed a lot of sort of technological support, and it needed. Um, we had to get by our own server um, and we had to do, there were many things that we needed this sort of help for. So we thought, okay, well, we have a whole, we have a budget for um, accommodation and travel and that we, to, <laughs> that's sort of go, going nowhere. So why don't we spend the, that whole budget on facilitators? So, so we did. 
and uh, and we got permission from the research council to do that and so so there, then then <laughs> there we went and then we sort of sent out the invitation to every member of the network and people were really excited by this and some were sort of thinking oh i can't do this and 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 then some really just thought okay i'm going to i'm going to try this out and um and it was it was really fun to see people actually sort of take sort of um taking this opportunity and so on and well and so we did it and we called them sort of summits we did summit 1 2 and 3 um and we also had a really funny thing so um at some point some of the organizers in the consortium they sort of decided oh no we can't do it so we ended up having a rebellion <laughs> so against the rebellion so we had first minecraft and then we had a zoom seminar because they thought that it was just getting too much with all that video gaming and then we had sort of minecraft um seminar again so we so it, there was a lot of back and forth there. Well, I think that's one of the great things about Minecraft like as a forum is flexibility but also accessibility. You can approach Minecraft in kind of a more simple way using it as a forum or you can go really intense with mechanics and things like that, but also hardware that it's very accessible. While there are many benefits to using Minecraft, what were the challenges in kind of translating that objective or those objectives of the project? It was so hard. I mean, for for a grown-up brain to, and it was so hard to, um, to to play it. I mean, it it we had to train so much for it, and I had to I had to ask my children for help all the time, even during the the, the actual workshop. I, I sort of I was sort of I was so in a way. Um, it was, it was, it was just a, ch a challenge. And some people did actually. In in the end, they said, "I just can't do it." They did. They sort of gave up. And I, I mean, I, I have to admit, for sort of several times, I thought, "Why am I doing this? It's so difficult." <laughs> so, um, but but we did it, and it's it's really fun to think back up, back back to. And um, but but it, the challenge was simply, I mean, the mechanics of this, and also giving into this whole thing. Um, and also failing, and in a way, sort of oh, oh, like, well, some and some were just quick learners, and others were not. I don't think I was a very quick learner in this, but I really wanted to. Um, and then it was, um, yeah, it was just fun to see all the sort of uh, whatever some some who were really really getting it and who went really far, and that was sort of enjoyable to see. I think that's why Minecraft as a as a cultural phenomenon has really kind of expanded because it is, especially for people who are playing maybe for the first time, that it can be this really empowering experience of creating. And yeah. once you get used to the tools or the keys, that it really is a tool for creativity rather than just a game and really simplifying yeah. it. But I guess aside from the academic output, what were the surprising aspects of the, of the project? I mean, it was it really was an experiment. I I really didn't know what to expect. So it was really just I I know what I don't want. I don't want to, sort of to sit in front of my screen for for a whole day in the usual sort of in the way we did during lockdown. I knew what I didn't want, but I I I really didn't know what to expect. Um, but what I can see now is that it was really a shared experience for those who were in and it's it's really quite unforgettable um also the energy in it and the sort of creativity and sort of the way colleagues would surprise you i mean no, you, i didn't know you had this in you but people had so many things that came out and they, they were all mixing with the sort of actually the seriousness of the issues that we were discussing and the, 
I mean, these were serious matters. Um, but there was also a thing that I thought was really beautiful. That was the sort of the vulnerability of putting yourself in a position. What I mean, we are all proud uh, of our all our academic degrees, and we are sort of if we have our hierarchies and so on. Um, but everyone who was there, who, who they were just sort of accepting the vulnerability of really looking stupid <laughs> and and making errors and not being able to do the most basic thing that your sort of seven-year-old child could do in a sort of a, um, with no effort at all. So I thought that was that was really that was really a different experience from um, normally. I mean, usual academic sort of uh, conferences. I think there's something kind of super disarming about Minecraft as a forum that we go to conferences and it's very serious and you're presenting your research and you have that role as an academic that you're there to present research or there to demonstrate your kind of expertise. But I think when it takes place in that kind of fun, colorful environment, that is a disarming experience. And you mentioned the first three of the Artechno workshops where they all centered around rebuilding or remixing and reinterpreting existing works of art, things like uh, cultural heritage sites or political cartoons or memes that have been minted as NFTs. What do you think that copyright lawyers can learn from this type of exercise? What what would you hope for them to learn mm -hmm. from this kind of process? I think it's very much on the level of how we educate and how we are educated. I mean, this, this workshop ended up being, um, of course, about the topics of it and everything you just mentioned. And it was also very much about how we learn and relearn these topics. And one of the best thing that was actually said by one of my co-organizers, Andrea, she said that um, doing the workshop in Minecraft, um, she realized what that she'd forgotten what it was like to be a beginner. And she was really, and, and that summed up everything beautifully because she has been teaching IP law for many years now and she says she realized she cannot remember what it's like to be a beginner in IP law and I've even started saying that to my own students I can't remember what it's like being you I simply can't you have to bear with me because I can't remember what it's like being a beginner in the first year of university so so tell me when whenever I mean get back to me whenever I sort of begin to say things um, that indicate that I can't remember but but it was it was really good to be reminded of um, I don't know how often we do that as sort of grown ups or maybe we don't want to challenge ourselves so much or I don't know maybe 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 we do maybe we don't I'm not sure I'm not sure. maybe I don't challenge myself enough but this was such a reminder of right there are some things I do many things on the fly now but there are some things where I'm really I really have to struggle and it's good it felt it felt really good to have to get back to scratch on something. I think that's with Minecraft and the pandemic kind of more broadly for academic work of precisely using these experimental forums or like platforms to really rethink how are we doing our scholarship or how am I as a scholar? And that's something, especially in Minecraft, that you very physically explore and kind of go through that process. And I think that's maybe one of the positives of the pandemic time of really looking at scholarship and reflecting as a scholar and how we produce work and how other people interact with it. What are the next questions that you think are important to deal with when it comes to understanding how art, technology and copyright law interact? I think it's, it's, it's reuse. I think, I mean, of course, since we've been, we've been looking at reuse, remixing and so on for a while, 
Um, but it's only becoming more p important and there's more and more of, um, I mean, creating, capturing value, value from new types of technology. I mean, again, this strong push from technology and it, it'll continue to enable more and more types of reuse of creative content. And, and I think what we want to find out is really how to, to make sure that it brings value to the originator, to the reuser, and also to the society and, and the public in general. I mean, I think this is a very important concern for sort of new directions in, in, the, in copyright law. Well, that's one of the things I see with a lot of NFT platforms or a lot of NFT marketplaces is reserving royalties for subsequent sales, but also for just in general of having that really clear lineage of who owned, who produced it, who owned it, who owned it at this specific time. And I think that's really an important development in kind of in copyright law and how we look at digital assets, but also just more generally at creative output. And we'd like to end our show podcast with a couple of rapid fire questions so that we get to know a bit more about our guests that we have at our IPS seminar. Would you be ready for that? Absolutely. So what is the last piece on IP or IT research that you've read and what have you learned from it? Well, I'm very interested in the whole discussion on technological neutrality. And uh, so I've been reading um, some pieces by um, by Carrie Craig, and uh, and I really enjoyed them, and and the whole debate and other sort of other um, sort of pieces as well. But it, it's the whole notion of future proofing of rules in copyright law, and and I think the what I take from this whole discussion is um, that in a way, if we want to achieve technological uh, neutrality, it's not about making sort of a priori rules it's actually about seeing what are the effects at any given moment in time seeing sort of actually taking a good look at what are the effects of these rules and are we still achieving what we want in terms of policy goals so technological neutrality is really about changing the law all the time and so what do you find to be the biggest challenge when doing research in ip law well <laughs> i'll tell you what i think is the biggest challenge for me is there is so much going on it's really hard to keep up and what is a current book that you're reading for work and what are you currently reading for leisure well i'm reading um a monograph by veronique pouillard so she's um she's a history scholar or history of business scholar in oslo and she has published a volume um, called paris to new york the transatlantic fashion industry in the 20th century came out last year and i'll be a respondent on this book on at an Ishtip event, Ishtip I mentioned in the beginning, on the 23rd of May. And this is actually, this is one really nice thing about everyone being socialized into the online now. That So this society, we would normally only meet in physical space, but now we've started to have online events so that we can see our colleagues in Australia and around the globe more more frequently than just once a year. So, um, so, so, so that'll be fun. What is your favorite case to teach in an IP law class? Well, actually, I have to admit, I always enjoy um, talking about Google cases because their lawyers are so brilliant and they sort of somehow they're really shaping the, the world we live in. So actually going through their, I mean, what what they do to shaping our, the, I mean, framing our sort of ways of thinking um, and going through it really line by line is fascinating. I forgot to mention a work of leisure. Shall I um, oh, yes. get into? Well, actually, it's it's sort of now coming here and also um, just well, I don't know, revisiting my my uh, sort of what I've done in the past. I'm reading um, uh, Thomas Mann's Tonio Kröger, 
<laughs> sort of one of the things that is sort of fun by I, it used to be a really favorite uh, sort of piece for for me but I, I, I'm not so sure now because it seems to me that what it's really saying is that you can only be a good artist if you are a dead artist <laughs> so <laughs> but yeah so it but it's fun rereading it well thank you for joining us today Stina I loved hearing about the Art Techno project and your research and we hope everyone listening will get inspired by it as well we're very much looking forward to hearing your talk later together with Andrea Wallace from the University of Exeter and again thank you to everyone joining online who listens to the podcast watches our videos and we will be back next time with another episode of IPA's research series podcast so Stina Timelands and Andrea Wallace's seminar Cultural Heritage, Digital Colonialism and Copyright Licenses can be found on the IPS website, which is ipsresearchgroup.com. And you can also check us out on Twitter and LinkedIn, IPS Research Group. We upload all of our events there, so you can see our scheduled seminars as well as these accompanying podcasts. And so you can always keep up to date by checking out the website. Mm-hmm.